locked into the world's best science. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week, with Katani. Dave Ansell, Mira Senthalingam, and I'm Chris Smith. Coming up, we'll be finding out how scientists have developed a new way to screen babies for Down syndrome just by testing a sample of the mother's blood. We'll also be hearing about a clever way to grab a cell sample from your stomach. You have a little pill tied to a piece of string. A nurse holds the string. You swallow the pill. The pill goes down into your stomach and there it expands to make a little rough sponge. And then after a few minutes, the nurse will pull on the string... The, th- the sponge comes back up, taking a sample of cells from your esophagus on the way. A hard act to swallow. Also, how scientists have used nanotechnology to produce what's arguably one of the world's stickiest substances. This material will support a force of about 100 newtons for every square centimetre, which is equivalent to 10 kilograms. The material does need to be pushed on very hard, maybe about 50 newtons for every square centimetre. This very large force is going to mean that actually using them for a Spider-Man suit is probably quite impractical. And a new vaccine initiative in Africa to combat the problem of meningitis. The World Health Organization has really ambitious plans for this vaccine. They want to start next year in Burkina Faso and between next year and the year 2015, they're going to do approximately 275 million people. That's all on the way. Very exciting news this week because researchers have found a way to test unborn babies for genetic abnormalities before they've actually been born, of course, and that's just using a sample of blood from the mother because up until now, the only way to diagnose a baby's genetic situation was to go and physically get a piece of the baby, cells from the baby. That was either in the form of sticking a very long needle into the amniotic sac, which is the bag of fluid the baby develops inside, and then getting some of the cells out of that sac and analysing the DNA that's in those cells or doing something called a CVS, a chorionic villus sample, where, again, a long needle is inserted into the placenta, which is made by the baby, and some samples of the tissue are taken away and again analysed genetically to see if the right numbers of chromosomes are there. But Steve Quake and his colleagues at Stanford University in California have come up with a much safer way to do this, just using the blood from a mother. Now, it all relies on a principle that was discovered a long while ago, actually, which is that when a mother is pregnant, you can find... DNA from the baby in the mother's bloodstream. And this is because cells from the baby break off from the placenta and go around in the mother's bloodstream, and cells also fall apart in the placenta, and their DNA floats out and goes around with the mother's blood. Now, why this is useful is that you can use that DNA to count how many copies of the chromosomes there are there, and therefore do the same as doing these risky procedures like an amniocentesis, which can trigger a miscarriage. This can't trigger a miscarriage, it's much safer. How did they do it? They take blood samples from the mother. In fact, in this small sample, they had 18 mothers who had a mixture of either a normal baby or a baby with a disease like Downs. And they then took the blood samples from the mother and used a very rapid sequencing technique to sequence the blood samples to work out which chromosomes they came from. And by... Well, with all things being equal, what should happen is that you should have equal numbers of reads, in other words, pieces of sequence from every single chromosome, because there should be equal numbers of copies of all of the chromosomes. But if one of the chromosomes is there in an extra copy, for instance with Down syndrome, that's caused by an extra copy of chromosome number 21, you get more DNA reads than you should do, on average, from chromosome number 21. You get a blip on the graph, and this enables them to detect that, and therefore they can predict that there might be an abnormality. 
But doesn't it get kind of flooded out by all the cells from the mother that are there? Surely you need very, very sensitive techniques to do this. Well, apparently the cell-free DNA, which is DNA that's broken out of a cell and is just floating around in, in the plasma of the mother, up to tens of percent of that can be of baby origin. So, in fact, you would be right, but the numbers of baby DNA molecules that are there are very, very high. And so you're actually recording a large amount of sampling from the baby, not just the mother. Oh, that is really good news as They're well. They're saying that the cost of doing this is half what it costs to do an amniocentesis. In their trial of 18 uh, individuals, they, uh, they got all of them 100% right. So now they want to do a much bigger trial and scale this up and see if it can be done as a, as a valid replacement for amniocentesis. And good news, because amniocentesis does carry a risk of miscarriage, so good idea. Anyway, on to another way to detect disease, and this is about detecting esophageal cancer. That's cancer of your food pipe, your gullet. And it's a growing problem in the UK because not only are rates rising dramatically from this type of cancer, but survival's often very low. And this is usually because the cancer is not spotted until a very late stage when it's, it's much harder to treat. And now this technique, which is just so beautifully simple, I heard about this at the NCRI Cancer Conference last week. It's been developed by Dr Rebecca Fitzgerald and her team at Cambridge University. Now, it all centres on detecting a condition called Barrett's esophagus, and this is a precancerous condition. It's usually caused by acid from your stomach coming back up into your gullet. And any of you out there who suffer from heartburn, this is what it is. Um, so heartburn is experienced by about 1 in 10 people in the population. Then around 1 in 10 of those will go on to develop Barrett's esophagus. And it's in this case, the acid causes the cells of the esophagus to change, and this can cause them to become cancer cells. And this happens to around 1 in a hundred people of Barrett's, with Barrett's esophagus, they go on to get esophageal cancer. Now currently the way doctors pick this up is basically by shoving a telescope down your gullet and having a look around. It's a technique called endoscopy. So you have to go to hospital, have this done. It's not very pleasant and um, obviously you have to go to hospital as well. But Dr Fitzgerald and her team have come up with a fantastic technique that can be just done in the GP surgery. And basically you have a little pill it's about the size of sort of a big vitamin pill tied to a piece of string. Uh, a nurse holds the string. You swallow the pill. She holds on to the end. That's the important bit. The pill goes down into your stomach and there it expands to make a little rough sponge that's about, you know, sort of the, the you know, smaller, much smaller than uh, a kind of a squash boy. You're talking about size of a raspberry, maybe. Uh, and then after a few minutes, the nurse will pull on the string the, th the sponge comes back up, taking a sample of cells from your esophagus on the way, and then you can look at those down a microscope. You can do things like antibody screening. And um, so far, this technique, they've, they've just done a study for acceptability. So are people just prepared to swallow a sponge, have it pulled back up, because it does make you gag? Um, and they, they found that people would much rather have this than to have to have an endoscopy. Sure, but do you think it's going to be as sensitive as an endoscopy because when someone does an endoscopy obviously you've got a very experienced set of eyes looking at the tissue that's point number one and point number two is you can then take a biopsy from areas that look dodgy so that you can then target your approach to, to saying I reckon that bit looks dodgy I'm going to sample it whereas with your sponge method it might miss that dodgy area and just take cells from elsewhere. Well, the, the aim of the sponge is, is basically taking a whole sample of cells from up the esophagus. And the beauty of this as well is that um, you can use immunostaining, fluorescent staining, um, so you could potentially automate it to just highlight cells that look dodgy. The other thing is, is that endoscopy, you can't really do that many. And the problem is that lots of people have heartburn, um, you know, tenth of those people go on to get Barrett's esophagus and then one in a hundred of those gets on to get cancer and it's very very high risk so potentially 
this rough and ready screening technique could really save lots and lots of lives from the disease by catching it early. Yeah, because it's nice and cheap, very quick. Do lots of people, and then exactly. the ones that you think might need an, another look, then you put your limited resources into them. Exactly. It's yeah. it's a sort of a quick and dirty screening for a cancer that really we could do so much better in survival if we could diagnose it earlier. And when will we see this potentially being wheeled out? Well, there's a lot more trials needed to do, but but Dr Fitzgerald herself said potentially in five or six years you could see it, you know, you sponge on a string down the GP surgery. Thanks, Cap. Now, people have been fascinated by the ability of lizards called geckos to chase their insect prey, not just on the ground, but up walls and even across the ceiling. And various scientists have tried to emulate this, but until now they've not managed to achieve the same level of stickiness. So how do geckos do what they do? Well, if you get two atoms very close together, they'll attract one another with what's called the van der Waals force. This is what holds materials like wax together. But normally if you push two objects together, they don't stick because they're so rough that very, very small areas of them actually touch. Now, geckos get around this using millions of tiny hairs on their feet, and then each of these hairs branch into even tinier hairs at the ends. Um, these are very flexible, which means that when the gecko pushes its feet onto the wall, a large portion of the tiny hairs are within an atom's breadth of the wall, so stick to it. And so a gecko can hold up about 10 newtons for every square centimetre. Now, scientists have been trying to use carbon nanotubes to do the same thing, but they haven't got very far. But Liming Day of the University of Dayton and colleagues have used these carbon nanotubes with very flexible and tangled ends. So if you push them onto a material, these tangled ends get very, very close to it and stick due to these van der Waals forces. Then if you try and slide it across, so a shearing force, um, these flexible ends kind of pull out and the surface, the area of touch gets bigger and bigger and so they get stickier and stickier. And it also means if you want to pull it off, you only have to pull off one bit at a time. They unpeel, so the force required to remove it is much less. This material will support a force of about 100 newtons for every square centimetre, which is equivalent to 10 kilograms. But the material does need to be pushed on very hard, maybe about 50 newtons for every square centimetre, to make it stick well enough, um, which is far more than a real gecko's foot or other analogues that other scientists have made. This very large force is going to mean that actually using them for a Spider-Man suit is probably quite impractical because you're never going to be able to push on hard enough to get the, the things to stick. It's a shame. It is, rather. But it does have some other advantages. Because the nanotubes conduct electricity, it could be used instead of solder to attach pieces of electronics together. So instead of having to heat up me- metal and melt things together, you could just stick these nanotube things onto them. And also, the nanotubes are unaffected by the vacuum of space, so unlike most glues. So you could use them in spaceships, so they don't degenerate with time. So we might be coming closer to Spider-Man one day. Thank you, Dave. Now, an interesting paper this week has come out in the journal Cell Metabolism, and this is David Patsouris and his colleagues, and why this caught my attention is that it solves a long-standing mystery of medicine, which is why is it when people put on a bit too much weight, why do they have a risk of diabetes? What's the link between putting on too much weight and becoming fat and then getting diabetes or pre-diabetes conditions? And what this paper explains is that they have homed in on a particular kind of cell, which ironically is called a macrophage, which is Greek for giant eater. And these macrophages are part of your immune system. They go around the body, taking up residence in our tissues, and their job is to eat debris, dead cells, and invading microorganisms like bacteria, things like that. And they have found a chemical marker on the surface of some of these cells called CD11C, which singles out a population of these macrophages that they have found are responsible for causing this diabetic state in people who get too fat. So if you take mice and you give them the rodent equivalent of junk food, so they all become 
overweight, they then show all the cardinal signs of becoming diabetic. And you can see in their fat tissue increased numbers of these CD11C macrophages. What the researchers then did was to use a very clever genetic trick to remove selectively just those cells from the mice and they immediately got better. And they showed better glucose levels, better insulin levels, that's the hormone that controls the levels of sugar. They also showed um, reductions of the levels of fat in their liver, which is another sign that um, a person has got too much weight on board. And also they showed a decrease in the amount of inflammation in their bloodstream. Chemicals called cytokines, which the immune system uses to signal are higher in people who are overweight and in these mice, but as soon as they remove these cells, the levels went back to normal. The researchers don't know why these cells are doing this or how they're doing it, how they're making someone resistant to their own insulin, but it's a very important first observation. And what this suggests is it might be a new target for making a drug to stop people who are overweight having such a high risk of, of diabetes. We'll obviously have to wait and see to, to work out whether or not this does translate into a benefit to humans yet, though. But it's certainly very exciting. It's absolutely fascinating because uh, it's the first uh, inkling that diabetes may be a disease linked to immune cells. And then also, particularly in my field, in the field of cancer, there's growing evidence that, that cancer may be due to sort of the immune cells not responding correctly to these problems. So very interesting. But now uh, here's some good news for any of our listeners who are thinning on top, obviously not including Chris and Dave here with your luxuriant heads of hair. You like my wig. Yeah, it's a good wig. Yeah, the Dolly Parton look really suits you. Uh, anyway, there's two papers in Nature Genetics this week that reveal genetic variations that contribute to male pattern baldness and that affects around a third of men by the time they're 45 and this is the classic pattern of baldness you know thing sting here where the hair starts thinning at the temples and and on top and it's thought to be hereditary in about eight of ten cases now we've known for some time that there's a, a maternal link here because they know that there's a gene on the x chromosome which you get from your mum if you're a man and uh, this is the basis of the idea that you get baldness basically from your mother's side of the family but there has been evidence that there there are other genes out there that are involved, but until now, they haven't been tracked down. So there were two papers published at the same time. The first is from scientists at McGill University, King's College London and GlaxoSmithKline, and they found two genetic variations that, if found together, increase a man's risk of baldness by seven times. And to find this, they scanned through the whole genomes of more than a 1,000 men who'd been assessed for male pattern baldness. And they found two previously unknown gene variations on chromosome 20 uh, that substantially increased the risk of baldness. And they confirmed these in, in more than uh, 1,600 men. And they rather surprisingly showed that more than one in seven men in the general population carries both of these baldness variations. What do these genes do? Why do they make you go bald? Well, at the moment, they don't know what they do. So what we've just found is variations in the genes. So the next bit of work is to try and track down to are these actually in genes, are these in control regions, for genes, all we've done is, is found this difference in the genome. So we don't really know what, what genes they are yet. Damn, I hope they're solved soon. Yeah, exactly. And now there's another team of scientists at Bonn and Dusseldorf who've also carried out similar research and, and found the same regions popping up again. So this is intriguing because as we've known that there's a baldness gene on the X chromosome, this is the first gene that's been discovered for baldness that's on one of the what's called the autosomes. These are the chromosomes that everyone has. Um, so, you know, this explains why baldness patterns might be carried out from father to son and also maybe if you could identify who's likely to get hair loss you could step in and prevent it in the future but that's a long way off sadly chaps 
Now, at the moment, while solar cells are clean and environmentally friendly, the electricity they produce is still three or four times more expensive than electricity from fossil fuels such as coal. Now, part of the problem is the high cost of manufacture, but a less well-known problem is the cost of actually installing the things. I hadn't realised this, but because solar, conventional solar cells are basically large and flat, they're like a great big sail, and if you want to attach them to the roof or something, you've got to hold them on really tight, so otherwise strong winds are going to blow them straight off. Now, a company called Solyndra is starting mass production of a solar cell which may solve this problem. Instead of using big flat solar cells, they're using very long, thin tubes, about three centimetres across, um, with a thin film semiconductor on the surface called copper indium gallium selenide, um, which, rather than being big and flat, um, then you paint the roof underneath white, so you get light reflected off the roof from underneath um, coming up onto the bottoms of the cylinders and light from the sun coming down onto them. And because they've got big gaps in between them, the air can rush through them so the wind doesn't pick them up, so you don't actually have to screw them down, so reducing the insulation cost immensely. Um, do they still generate reasonable amounts of electricity? Um, they're still about 13% efficient themselves, so probably not as good as a conventional one, but the big limit on the amount of solar power we can generate isn't how much area we've got, it's how expensive they are to build. Sure, and, uh, and how much do they cost? Um, they haven't actually, they're not selling them on the street at the moment, but they should be intrinsically cheaper than conventional solar cells as well as this huge reduction in installation costs. Thank you, Dave. And also this week, Africa has unveiled plans to tackle the problem of meningitis head-on with a new vaccine. But first, a South Africa-based science reporter, Christina Scott, explains to Mira Senthalingam there are also some issues surrounding the African meat industry. There's a big debate going on about bush meat, which is a particular term used for wild animals. And it can be virtually any wild animals. In some parts, it's an extra big-sized rat that runs through the sugarcane fields. In other places, we're talking about antelope, deca, as they're often known, and porcupine. And it goes right up towards our closest relatives, chimpanzees, gorillas. And how big is the demand for this meat? I mean, how many people are relying on it as their protein source? In Central Africa, it's really, really important. They think, according to this new report that's out by the Centre for International Forestry Research, that bush meat provides up to 80% of the protein and fat needed in people living in the rural areas. It's not an urban phenomenon quite as much, although it's still quite popular, and you will find bush meat on sale at virtually any urban market throughout the continent. But in the rural areas, bush meat is the difference between living and dying. It's a really important part of people's diets. Well, why are governments and organisations getting concerned about this? What's the problem with people eating bushmeat? Well, to a certain extent, research within Africa has been really constrained by this kind of disapproval emanating from donors and conservation bodies comfortably ensconced in cities in the West and in the North because there it's frowned upon. It's seen as something not nice. But the argument that you shouldn't eat bush meat because it's unethical and it's not nice and it's not sustainable aren't really easy to maintain when you're talking about people who don't have other sources of food. So this new report says that, okay, in the long run, we're going to have to find either other sources of food or we're going to have to basically find ways of farming some of the wild animals as one option. Because in the long run, because Africa's population is going to grow at a certain rate, the demand for bushmeat is so high that we're going to wipe out not just the wild animals. There are other reports out saying that the same thing is happening with a lot of indigenous vegetation. 
And so the main problem seems to be the fact that so many people are going to be eating the meat soon that the animals are going to reduce in number dramatically. What the research says is that rather than adopting a self-righteous attitude towards using bushmeat and saying, don't do it, you know, these abstinence campaigns don't work. So they're saying you need to cut deals with local people in specific areas. It's not one size fits all. So the researchers like Natalie van Fleet, who's in southern Cameroon, says that you negotiate with local communities that we will let you hunt this, this, and this, but you have to stay away from the endangered species, and this is why you have to stay away from the endangered species. So in southern Cameroon, they've got people hunting porcupine and small antelope in the national parks, and because the local people are allowed to do that, they're not hunting the Cross River Gorilla, which is highly endangered. And since they they went through this new approach, no gorillas have been killed in that park. So you have to find specific ways of negotiating with the local people so that it becomes a win-win situation. Well, the fact that the countries it's been used in so far has worked quite promisingly is always a good sign. Now, also in the last few weeks, health ministers in certain African countries have promised the delivery of a meningitis vaccine. Yes, this is the meningococcal A conjugate vaccine. And they're particularly happy with it because it doesn't just confer long-term protection and induces immunity, but there's a community protection aspect to it. So people who are within the community, even if they didn't get vaccinated, are going to be protected simply because it reaches a point where everybody gets protected because you're minimizing the epidemic outbreaks. We've got a meningitis disaster belt stretching right across the continent. Basically, all the countries right under the Sahara are heavily at risk. I think it's 25 African countries in total. So that's basically half of the countries on the continent. And that makes several hundred million people. So it's a big thing. And this new vaccine is great because what they're saying is that we can actually get ahead of the epidemics and we can prevent these catastrophic periodic epidemics. And by Western standards at any rate, it's relatively cheap. It's only half a US dollar a dose. And it works in adults and it works in children. And how many people are looking to be vaccinated by this? The World Health Organization has really ambitious plans for this vaccine. They want to start next year in Burkina Faso. And between next year and the year 2015, they're going to do approximately 275 million people. And that's people in 25 different countries in Africa. I think it's got incredibly positive spin-offs for other things, whether it's fighting the outbreak of polio in Nigeria or hopefully in the not too distant future, being able to roll out a vaccine against HIV. Because once you have a successful vaccine rollout program, it has incredible spin-offs for public health in all kinds of other areas as well. Science reporter Christina Scott in South Africa talking to Mira Senthalingam. That's it for this week and thanks for listening. The Naked Scientist News Flash was produced this week by Ben Valsler and I'm Chris Smith. There's more news on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. We'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.